please welcome Wally Rudolph and Andrea Klein. Andrea. Hi. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you for Skylight for hosting us. Um, we had a plan. Yeah, we, we got a plan. Uh, my plan is to turn my microphone on. Okay. Oh, I will say, if anybody wants to hashtag or tweet or anything, it's at Skylight Books. At Skylight Books. And we each have a cheat sheet. We each have a cheat Wally sheet. Wally typed his, and I, I did not type mine. It's because I, I tend to ramble. <laughs> a rambler. So, Andrew, yeah, Andrew and I talked a few yeah. days ago, and I think we quickly realized how unique of an opportunity this was, being that we're both coming from a performance background. And that I know, uh, for me, it's very rare that I get to talk to another writer who's pursuing literary fiction who's coming from as, as steep of a performance background that I think, you know, you're, I think you're even a little bit more steep than me. But, um, yeah, and, that, and that, how unique that is and what an opportunity was to talk about that and how that frames and how it affects our work. Yeah. Yeah. We actually had a, we had a telephone conversation and we both freaked out and we're like, how do we record this so yeah. that we can repeat it? Well, it's being recorded. Oh, okay. Well, well yeah, now, now it's yeah. being recorded. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the light is on. Yeah. Now it better be good this time. So one of the things, um, like one of the similarities that I found in our books was this uh, use of, of performativity. Um, and I admit that when I, when I read Mighty Mighty, I, I instantly... I could recognize that you were an actor. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I did know that beforehand, before right. sitting down to read it. But it read, it had so many elements of um, playwriting in it, I felt. And um, and one of the things that um, reminded me of playwriting in it was that your, was your use of negative space in the in, in the dialogue that a lot of the dialogue a lot of like what we think of in fiction as um, interiority uh, actually happens in the dialogue of of mighty mighty yeah uh, I was that's funny because yeah. I was going to notate that yeah I think uh, that is a major uh, a major influence it's probably pretty apparent if you're you know I'm, I'm coming from a I'm coming from Chicago tradition so Mamet is definitely right up in the front head of my mind along with Sam Shepard and um, a lot of the scenes especially between the two of the main characters uh, Norman and Paul there's a lot of that you know you're going I'm going I'm taking a play out of the Mammoth book as far as the naturalized dialogue and trying to keep right. it, but it's still moving it forward as far as the emotional beats and having, you know, I always go back to that great opening scene in American Buffalo where they're just ranting, ranting, but the scene is just clipping right along and um, yeah, that's, that's definitely a uh, definitely, uh, uh, should I, should I, is this a point where we should segue and I should re read a little bit? Uh, you could. Yeah, I will. I will. I, I will. I get, there's an early uh, scene with um, Norman and Paul here, and I'm without uh, without to get into into a huge bit, but to give you an idea. So Norman and Paul are in the hospital. 
uh, I won't give too much context, I don't want to give too much away, but Norman's old partner, Paul Kolsky, stepped into the hospital room. He still moved like an elephant on his last legs, head down, throwing his weight side to side after every step. He took off his hat and unzipped his blue bear's parka. Instantly, the bite of tzatziki sauce filled the room. Paul wiped his mouth with the crumpled napkin from his pocket and then swatted at the top of his head, trying in vain to tame his last few dancing gray hairs into a comb-over. Traffic was a son of a bitch, said Paul. Clark's backed up all the way past Wrigley. You should have taken Lakeshore, that's what I did, said Norman. Yeah, well, Sheila's in the hallway. We're sorry, Norman. It's a goddamn tragedy. Thank you, Paul. Could we have a second? Norman asked the nurse. Of course, take your time, Mr. Quinn. But there, and they, and there, you know, throughout the book, when you get deeper into the, the scenes, because Paul and Norman, their their uh, their relationship is a, a is kind of one side is at the heart at one side of uh, the book. They have plenty of these back and forths, and as I was writing them, I was thinking of. Mammoth was in my head. Sam Shepard was in mm-hmm. my head. Neil Simon was in my head just to get mm-hmm. that pop mm-hmm. um, because it brings the characters to life, you know. Mm-hmm. And and, and um, but what about you? What about you when you were talking about? Okay, but wait, because I have because this is like I'm, I made a note of one of my favorite pages of Mighty Mighty. What? So <laughs> I know I know I I'm supposed know. to talk about my own book, but this is the only note I made like this. So don't feel bad. Yeah. Okay. Cause yeah. Blush. blush. <laughs> don't blush. Um, uh, just because I thought it was such a great example of, of like leaving space for the reader and sort of as the reader to be the actor in a way. Um, so this is a scene between the two women who are sisters, yes. Amanda and Steffi. Um, you know, Georgie's dad was a cop, right? Steffi said after her. He put Lee away. You're kidding yourself if you think this is just going to disappear, Amanda. I wanted to talk to you. I need my sister, but I'm sitting here listening to your hungover, strung-out bullshit. Amanda, look at me. Fuck off. Look at me, Amanda. Amanda stopped, turned around. Steffi hadn't moved from the window. Her skinny arms wrapped around her her even skinnier waist, and without her makeup, her sister looked old, tired. Please don't do this, she said. We need groceries, said Amanda. Get a job. That was that was like my favorite. That was like one of my favorite passages. Oh, thank you. Just because it was so like, I thought it really captured this um, relationship between the two sisters, talking about something loaded and emotional, and then ending with "We need groceries. You know, get a job." Yeah, I think, and I'm sure you can attest to this from your experience with uh, uh, in, in in dance. Is that I think I'd like to think that. Being, coming from a performance tradition that I'm a little bit more aware of kind of the emotional vocabulary that we all work with. Right. Especially in terms as it uh, harkens back to basic theatricality and, and the, the, the placement of the body and how that plays out. Like, can you speak to that? Is, does that play into the way you're writing a lot of your fiction? Are you aware, for lack of a better term, are you, are you aware of the stage picture as you're, as you're framing scenes? Um... I think uh, structurally, yeah. in a sense, and because um, my background's also in dance, I do um, think choreographically right. um, in how 
how how the story is organized, um, and that the structure itself can have a conceptual basis. Um, so that is that is um, something that I think about. But in terms of theatricality, the process of writing is very performative to me in that I, I feel like I get to play all the parts yeah. and that um, for me personally I'm a much better actor on the page than I ever was on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in in my book the characters are um, the characters themselves are playing with performance um, and so I'll read a short section like that. Um, so this is, uh, pardon me. Um, so the book has uh, two two main protagonists told in these uh, dual narratives, and this is from uh, the character Jeffrey, who is a fictionalized uh, John Hinckley Jr. character. He had it all planned out. He walked to the railing in front of his door. He rested his forearms on the metal bar and leaned out, pretending he was enjoying the night air, but really he was scanning the parking lot below. Once he was satisfied the coast was clear, he reached into his pocket and pulled out his pack of cigarettes. He smacked the package against the palm of his hand a couple times, as he had seen his sister do. He wasn't sure what purpose it served, but his sister always did it methodically with every new pack. Then he pulled out a single cigarette and stuck it in the corner of his mouth. He went through the motions of his plan as if there were an audience watching him. I'm like Romeo on the balcony, he thought, remembering the awkward Shakespeare scenes they had to act out in high school English class. Then he remembered it was Juliet on the balcony and Romeo down below. It was backward, but he thought it was okay. He patted down his pockets, pretending to be looking for a lighter. He purposely didn't buy one at the 7-Eleven, and he left the free matches on the counter. He thought it would be too over the top to say something out loud like, oh no, I don't seem to have a light. Instead, he tried to act as natural as possible. He held the cigarette in place with his teeth and walked over to the stairs. He knew he should do this without pausing to look down. If anything, he should walk quickly. As he approached the stairwell, he couldn't see for sure if she was there or not. He decided to continue according to plan, hoping that maybe she was still there, but only slightly out of view. He saw her when he got to the bottom of the stairs. She wasn't leaning on the fence. She was sitting opposite the stairs on the ground, with her knees bent up by her chest and her back to the wall. He could see her white underwear shining between her thighs because her skirt was so short. The tiny little patch of white cotton glowed in the dark. He felt a little strange looking down on her like that. He wished she would stand up. She peered at him through the blonde hair hanging in her face. Hey, Pop, she said. Jeffrey was immobile. He forgot his lines. He finally managed to squeeze out a barely audible high. He was thankful that she was already smoking. Do you have a light, he asked. The girl crawled forward and pushed herself to her feet. When she stood up, she was taller than Jeffrey. It was her shoes. She passed her cigarette to him. Jeffrey had never done this before. He carefully held her burning end to his virgin cigarette and sucked in. Slowly, a little ring of black started to form. 
and it began to smoke on its own. He didn't want to give the cigarette back to her, the fiery stub with her lipstick print, but she dipped her fingers in and lifted it away. She took a puff on it for good measure to reinforce the fact that it was hers. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think though, what, what the specificity as a, as a guy coming from the performance trip, that's I just hearing that piece, the specificity. Of, I know when I'm reading other work and other a lot of other fiction, contemporary fiction, that specificity isn't there, and I totally now I'm like, you totally do all the like, you're totally aware of like where the where the position of all the of their movements are and what their movements uh you've got the subtext of their movements their actions in there it's all wrapped in there i dig it thank you high five <laughs> <clears throat> should we move move on oh yeah now we have topic two yeah yeah we were talking about the idea of place and the city as a character yeah the the the, 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 the uh in our books because i think both our books are so um geographical spe- specific and they're there's they're, they're uh, chicago in my book is a is a uh character unto itself mm-hmm. um for me i'll just jump right in okay for me, you know, stepping into the Chicago thing, it was I was uh, a little bit concerned. Chicago's got a, such a steep literary tradition that I was feeling like I was stepping into deep water with it. I actually went back. One of the first things of the early dress, I went back and I looked at the old Carl Sandburg poem, Chicago. It's titled that I'd worked with at Steppenwolf Theater while I was up there, of all places. And um, I'll just read a little bit of it and. Um, uh, this is Chicago by Carl Sandburg. Hog butcher for the world, tool maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads and the nation's freight handler, storm, husky, brawling, city of the big shoulders. They tell me you are wicked and I believe them, for I have seen your painted women under the gas lamps deluring the farm boys. And they tell me you are crooked and I answer, yes, it is true, I have seen the gunmen kill and go free to kill again. And they tell me you are brutal and my reply is on the face of women and children I have seen the marks of want and hunger and having answered so I turn once more to those who sneer this sneer at this my city and I give them back the sneer and say to them come and show me another city with lifted head singing so proud to be alive and coarse and strong and cunning so I had all that you know instantly in that in that piece you're just getting the whole entire feel of the city and I went and revisited this poem so many times as I was writing just to kind of show you how I was cribbing and trying to take it. This is uh, from one of the opening chapters. When it was cold, the trains were louder. After living in Chicago for 14 years, Steffi swore she could tell when the seasons were changing just by the mash of metal on the tracks. At the end of winter, just before the week-long joke of a spring, the tracks thawed, warmed, the metal softened, and by the first week of June, as sweat started to steam the entire city, the train reduced to a reliable thumping, like sweet guitar buzzing inside a pair of tuned mufflers. The train kept the entire city company through summer, It didn't matter what line you were on or what side of the city. If you were in earshot of the L, it felt like you were one stop away from home. But now at the end of the summer, just before winter returned like some forgotten drunk uncle swinging freezing punches and pissing black ice, the trains turned back into barreling, shrieking monsters. Even the buses got loud. 
angry like all the ghosts of the baddest rotten Brahma bulls rose from the ashes of the stockyards and possessed the engines of the red, white, and blue machines. And so I was really, I was really conscious when I was writing it about trying to capture the feel, especially early on, but capture the feel of Chicago because uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I don't want to embarrass myself without the Chicago, the Chicago literary scene ain't no joke, and I wanted to honor it, and I think it can be so powerful, uh, it can be such a powerful force in the work when you're capturing that specific area, that, that's, a, that's a big thing, do you feel like that when you're doing with DC, when you're, yeah, um, you grew I think, up there, yeah, so, I did yeah. grow up partly in DC, um, I think, um, I think one of the interesting things you did in Mighty Mighty was to really capture the physicality of the city, or like you said, like the the shoulders. Yeah. It, it was it was like the city was drunk, um, and I thought that I thought that was uh, super interesting. Um, the three martini lunches, well, in yeah, yeah, yeah. in Chicago, um, <laughs> they're still doing it up there. Yeah, I I grew up uh, in D.C. in the early '80s, and um, I have two little short sections, and um, coming being that you grew up from there, do you feel uh, that when you're writing it, writing back to it as an adult? I'm writing from Chicago because I did when I was in Chicago. I did a lot of cocaine and drank a lot of booze. Uh-huh. So when I think of Chicago, I think of a lot of people. Thus, there are right. a lot of people in this book are. Ju- so doing Chicago's a lot. kind of an altered state for you. Exactly. Yeah. Be- that being said, when you look at when you're writing as an adult about DC after growing up there, do you have a do you feel like there's a nostalgia there, or are you trying to? It's not nostalgia, but it's it's not nostalgia at all. Um, it's uh, also I left. Uh, my family left D.C. when I was about 13. Um, so D.C. is really uh, frozen in my memory in childhood. Um, so I don't really have an adult relationship with the city. Okay. It's really... And because it's frozen in my childhood, it's kind of mythological. Okay. And D.C. is sort of mythological to all of us because it's because it's the capital. Um, and, you know, the iconography of the city is something that we're, we're all very familiar with. Um, um, so this is also a section from uh, Jeffrey's, the John Hinckley Jr. character. And everybody knows John Hinckley Jr. He tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan in 1980 because he was obsessed with Taxi Driver and Jodie Foster and yep. just refreshing everyone's Wikipedia page. Okay. Um, okay. Jeffrey loved the names of the D.C. metro stops. L'Enfant Plaza, Farragut North, Smithsonian, Judiciary. They sounded dignified and European. Unlike the names proliferating his parents' suburb, South Shore Square, Elm Tree Court, West End Lane, interchangeable names with no identity, no history. Who makes up those names, Jeffrey wondered. There were definitely guidelines for it somewhere. Pleasant View Drive, Overlook Terrace, Skyline Circle. Names made up to make people feel safe. Sell the prospective homeowning American couple, the dream of property's values skyrocketing. Buy your small starter house, sell it. Buy a bigger house, sell it. Buy a golf course. Oakleaf Avenue, Maple Square, Sycamore Lane, all things nice and green. None of that city grime and crime. You're not bussing our kids. We moved out here to get away from all that. 
and of course, the patriotic Liberty Court, Franklin Place, Washington Way. Doesn't anyone live on a street anymore? That must be somebody's job, Jeffrey thought, coming up with names for streets. Probably some civil servant sitting in an energy-efficient sealed building working for some pseudo-government agency. Was the government in charge of that? Or was it a corporation? Either way, it's the same loser guy sitting in an office with a window he can't open. Washington was organized. It was elegant. Designed by French architects, a city whose existence was engineered to be the model home of the brave. Division lines sprung out of the Capitol Dome, separating quadrants, colors, and parties. Northeast, northwest, southeast, southwest. Jeffrey liked the way streets were listed, Connecticut Avenue, northwest. It sounded classy, better than saying northwest Connecticut Avenue. Every state had its own avenue, even Hawaii. Washington felt like a foreign country. And then later, Jeffrey grows disenchanted with Washington. Jeffrey scudded down the street away from the hotel. He bumped into someone with his shoulder and didn't bother with an excuse me. He felt bad about it, but he had no time to be polite. He walked several blocks with his head down, looking at the sidewalk. He had no plan other than to find her and to find her quickly. He had to find her quickly. Time was not on his side. In fact, time was on the opposite team, taunting him, knowing that he was always the last one picked, always the last one up to bat, and always sure to strike out. Jeffrey weaved through office workers, eating their bag lunches in Lafayette Park. He scanned the line of tourists waiting outside the White House gates. He thought about getting on a bus heading up Pennsylvania Avenue. On a bus he could cover more ground, but he wouldn't be in control. He might not get a window seat. He might not be able to get off where he wanted. The bell might not work. Some pregnant woman might go into labor, and the bus would have to make a detour to the hospital. Jeffrey would walk. He stayed on Pennsylvania Avenue and walked. Jeffrey started to sweat. He slowed down. Pennsylvania abruptly ended, and Jeffrey was deposited onto M Street, He didn't like being on a street named after a random letter of the alphabet. Streets should have names. Things with just letters were never anything good. KGB, CIA, SDS, IBM, you name it. Wisconsin came to his rescue. Jeffrey hung a right onto Wisconsin Avenue. He felt a little better. He didn't see Amber or any of the movie crews. He kept walking. He walked a long while. He passed Garfield Street and thought, dead president, you get a side street. What a letdown. Give your life for your country and you get a fucking side street. Or a faceless white tombstone in Arlington Cemetery, identical to every other faceless white tombstone in Arlington Cemetery, so no one can ever find you. That's it. Sorry. Oh, and here's a folded up flag for your mom. Um, should, should we move on? We we're going to move on to topic three. What's it? Yeah, what <laughs> topic three be? Topic three was um, that both of our books uh, interrogate violence. No, not mine. <laughs> <laughs>
Yes. And that uh, how do like how do we do that as writers? I for me um, as a writer. I'm interested in tragedy and and the effects of trauma and the effects of violence. And it's very tricky to write about violence and not celebrate it. Um, and it's very confusing uh, to do that, to, to investigate violence in one's writing in such a crazy, fucked up world. Yeah, I think um, when Dan, uh, my editor, uh, we were at we were at the uh, we we're near end of uh, edits, and you know, getting Kelly Winton, wonderful interior designer. I think she did she did your book. Yeah, oh, yeah she, you know, she puts out the call. What's going to be your last? What do you want your dedications? Do you want any quotes at the beginning? And AWP last year, uh, 2014, the great uh, poet Roger Reeves, uh, who's a great poet, he wrote a, he's got a collection out there called King Me. But one of the speech speaks. I was following. I couldn't be there, but I was following it on Twitter. And one of the one of his, uh, he opened one of the uh, his little uh, seminar events, and he said, you know, violence is the American version of love. And I was like, that's what my book is about. I told Dan, and Dan and I were like, yeah, this really captures it. I think... Um, and you use that quote at the start yeah, of the Yeah, I book. do, I do, because I think that kind of captures it. We're at this, I think, whether we like it or not, it's so much, specifically right now, it's so much in the frontal lobe of all our brains, and we're sitting here watching uh, as these mass shootings just pile up, pile up, pile up, as black Americans get indiscriminately beaten and killed, this girl in South Carolina just yesterday. And I thought about it, and for me, I was aware of it while I was writing it. I couldn't put it into words that succinct, but I was aware that I wanted to use violence almost as a, a color unto itself in my book, as... And it would be the main color. It would be, I wanted to use all shades of it. I wanted to show how we as Americans, we use it to grieve. I wanted to show how we use it to express love. I wanted to show how we use it to express sorrow. And it's all, and it's so counterintuitive, but it's a, it's a major way. It's so part ingrained in our culture uh, about, you know, that's the way we go about things. It's, you know, I think it's part of the American exceptionalism thing and part of the... Mm stiff upper lip but I think it's also the, the stiff upper lip gone awry and it's kind of gotten it to this place where it pervades our culture in the worst of ways um, I got this portion at the beginning of the book um, so the, one of the main characters is uh, of my book his name is Norman and he's a retired uh, city cop and he has a son named Georgie and um, Georgie uh Georgie's a troubled soul. But as, as it relates to what I was just talking about, I'll read this little passage. This is why he didn't like coming home during the day. He preferred the morning, early morning, the robbing hour from 2.20 to 4.46 on the dot. Everyone is asleep then. If you're awake, you can only blame yourself if, if you get got. When he got to the house, he didn't bother with the front. He went straight to the back door, knowing that even though he told his father a thousand times to replace that silly-ass brass knob with a double-cylinder deadbolt, you're begging to get murdered, he'd said. His old man had kept the same damn worthless lock. He smiled as he flipped out his buck blade. Buck blade. 
farted as he swiped the lock. His stomach hurt. Mouth still got wet when he broke into homes. It was something that he never got over. When he was younger, he'd sweat like a pig going through jewelry cabinets, run from the house vomiting, speed away in that crap Mustang with his stomach, stomach doing somersaults. It got so bad he told his father he was desperate, out of options, and was embarrassed to tell a doctor that as a grown man, he regularly messed his pants. His father didn't laugh like he thought he would. He listened, patted him on the knee, and made him a sandwich for lunch. When they were done, they went to the backyard. His father showed him part of the roof that had been leaking, made him climb up on a ladder, and then when he was near the top, the rain gutter at his eye, his father kicked the ladder out and watched him slam onto the ground. He remembered orange and black, sunlight warming his closed eyelids as he lay on the ground. He smelled the jasmine bush, his dead mother's favorite that he had planted as a child with her watching, smoking her second and last cigarette of the day. The soft, damp ground cradled him, and he remembered thinking that the city, that he, and he remembered thanking the city that it was summer, not winter. And in that moment, with his head throbbing, shin bleeding, and a finger broken, he was sure there were angels, but still remained undecided about God. He should have died. And right there, um, we've got this this lesson that that Norman was trying to teach young Georgie by kicking him off a ladder and. Yeah, I think that's, you know, there's much more brutal stuff in the book, throughout the book and stuff, but I think, for me, that was the way I was looking at it. it. How did you feel about it, specifically when you're working with something, you know, they got that, they got that saying in acting, you know, you don't do a, you don't do, you know, you don't do a streetcar named Desire because Marlon Brando already did, so you don't, you don't mess with that, but when you're working with something as iconic as John Hinckley and the, and the Reagan uh, assassination, how did you, how did you make that your own, and how did the violence the way you depicted it as specifically because we've seen that you know we've seen that imagery yeah. like how did that work into your own book and well it's um um it's mirrored uh the sort of sensational pop culture violence right. in the book is uh mirrored with yikes sorry <laughs> do that a lot <laughs> Is mirrored with a very uh, mirrored with a very intimate uh, violence, and um, uh, the reason I wrote the book is my weird uh, personal connection to the Hinckley story, um, which is that um, Hinckley was found, of course, not guilty by reason of mental illness, and he was committed to psychiatric care to a hospital in Washington. And while he was there, he um, became romantically involved with a woman who had also been committed to psychiatric care, found not guilty by reason of mental illness, uh, because during a psychotic episode, she had shot and killed her daughter, who was a childhood friend of mine. So that is my very weird, uh, less than six degrees uh, separation to John Hinckley. Um, and that the murder of that girl was um, one of the defining moments of my childhood. So I, um, so one of the reasons I thought to write about the violence um, was to sort of show how um, far the, the tentacles of violence 
go. Um, and there is like trigger warning. There's a very, like in your book, there's some very uh, brutally depicted scenes. And I felt like I had to write them that way um, to sort of honor the truth of it and to, to, to really, you know, acknowledge that violence is... Uh, carnage, it's physical carnage, it's psychic carnage, uh, it's spiritual carnage. Um, yeah. Yeah, I feel you on that. <laughs> I think you don't get one, I'm, I'm big on duality and I'm big on uh, the yin and yang of it all and I don't think you get the beautiful moments without the really rough stuff. I think uh, we're losing a little bit of that in adult literature, not, not that everything has to be explicit and gnarly, but just the fact that you don't get one without the other. You got to get the full the full range of uh, human experience. And, and I, I actually I think one of the similarities in the books is the sort of inevitability yes. of of the violence. Um, I sort of say up front that you know this is based on historical events, so you sort of know it's coming. And and uh, and I think you also set it up right right like the instigating moment is comes very yeah. uh, near the beginning of your book. So. So. I think. Should we? Should we? Or, or, or do we want to? Do you want to read one last passage? Um. Yeah. I will read one okay. last passage. Your re- author's choice. Um. So um, the book really has these two main protagonists, this Hinkley character and an 11-year-old girl. But in the center of the book is the kind of this aria of where this mother um, kills her child. And very briefly, we're in her point of view. Valerie opened the front door and walked out into the pearly gray early light, still awkward on her wooden sandals. There were already a few children leaning against the car. They were, for the most part, unhappy. For the most part, this was not their idea. Early morning swimming before school. Tuesdays and Thursdays were her days. She drove the children to the promenade swim club and another mother picked them up. One of them said hi to her between bites of a sandwich made of peanut butter and toast. Valerie thought she had used up all the words she was going to say today, so she only nodded back. She opened the car doors for the children, and they slid silently into the back seat. At the end of the block, she saw another child approaching with his familiar posture, towel draped over one shoulder, sneakers dragging along the pavement. He walked down the middle of the street instead of the sidewalk. Valerie always told him this was dangerous, a car could hit him. Today she said nothing, and he didn't notice. Last always was Gretchen. Valerie got in the car and honked the horn. Gretchen would not emerge from her house otherwise. She lived the closest, but she was always the last one out. Gretchen sat next to Valerie in the front seat. She always managed to sit up front. She was smart. She intimidated Valerie. In two or three years, she would start sleeping with her husband's friends. She was the type. And in the end, they would all blame the men for being weak. No one would blame Gretchen. Can I turn on the radio? Valerie turned to Gretchen and looked at her through her sunglasses. 
Mallory didn't really need sunglasses this early in the morning, but she needed protection. She knew that's why movie stars wore sunglasses all the time, because they were tired of people trying to look them in the eye. It gave them a sense of power to be a little bit invisible. I could kill her, Valerie thought. I could crash the whole car and still make it back home in time. Gretchen, always cranky in the morning, cocked her head and opened her eyes wider, waiting for an answer. Valerie smiled and turned back to the road. Gretchen took that as a yes and flipped on the radio. She adjusted it to Q107. The Q, all the children sang along. The Q Zoo in the morning. It wasn't until Valerie turned into the driveway of the swim club that a voice from the back seat asked her where Kieran was. Valerie knew she would have to speak. She tried to calm herself, be as economical as possible. Sick. One word, only one. The children slithered out of their car like little lizards breaking out of their eggs. They gave her a few byes and okays and one see ya. They trudged to the pool house and didn't look back. Their day was ordinary. Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to read, in closing, I'm going to read, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the stuff I write about. I write about people, you know, struggling to get by, fighting to get by, people killing to get by. That's, that's kind of my thing. And there's a character in the book, uh, her name's Father Dunn. Her name's Father Sarah Dunn. And she runs a homeless shelter uh, that's an actual real homeless shelter in Chicago. It's called Cathedral, Shel- Cathedral Shelter. She's not real, but the shelter is. But I'm going to read this little portion uh, and uh, it, to speak to kind of the, the role of violence in the book and where I was coming for it, the duality. Um, I think you guys will get where I'm going with it. And then we'll take a few questions, yeah. if, if need be, and then we'll you know wrap it up. Father Dunn cupped her hands on Ghost Town's front doors and peered inside. It was just after ten in the morning and the shop was still dark. Lee's barber chair, barber's chair sat empty in the shadows. She could just make out the cracked leather on its armrests and back. At the center of the shop, the brass antique register glowed. It looked like a storybook treasure, shining and reflecting the sunlight stabbing through the front. She was ready to leave. For the past hour, she'd sat in her car, waiting for the shop to open up. She needed to go to the bathroom, call the shelter, and make sure Mary, her assistant, knew where she was. She didn't know who she was looking for, what the girls even looked like, and the longer she waited, the more she believed that whoever they were, they were possibly already dead. Shit. The word came out in a sigh. Father Dunn watched her breath condense and dissolve in front of her. Again, she cursed herself for forgetting her phone. Chance had caught her off guard. She'd left in a rush. Since she got back to the States six years ago, Cathedral Shelter had been her life. People misunderstood, always thought her heart brimmed with healing love, like every day was Christmas to her because she was supposedly closer to God, like she had a special tea she sipped while she said a special mantra that turned on a special light inside her chest that made it that she required no sustenance besides the satisfaction of bringing homeless men and women into a 12-week program and convincing them to re-enter society before they died, like convincing adults to abandon their addictions, secure employment, and seduce skeptical landlords and managers of halfway homes to give them a spot on a waiting list for a sinking mattress in a room the size of a large closet was so fulfilling 
that it actually lengthened her life, helped her sleep, and was free of any ulcer-inducing anxiety or cancer-causing stress. If she was honest, she was stunned. In a daze, the whole thing, Chance coming over at the crack of dawn, his face and body struck with terror, was like she was trapped in a memory that wouldn't end. She was back in Nairobi when things were at their worst. Near the end, after three years of missionaries, she'd finally gotten used to the work. She stopped shrinking at the gang rapes and the gaping cracked skulls. Exposed bone and organs no longer made her wince. Some of the other priests went cold. Their hearts died at the sight of children with minced limbs, their white tendons dangling like bloody fringe on the ground. But she'd witnessed something else. It took her two years after she'd left to recognize for what it was. Until then, she'd believed life and faith were companions, one heightening the other in a single ballad to heaven. But there, day after day, life made its case under that damned sun on that parched, starving ground. Life argued in slaughter and faith replied in joy. Like two hyenas, life cackled at the mass graves, reminding her of everyone's end, and faith snapped back with the velvet songs of her survivors, their laughter and gracious prayers to God. It was there in a makeshift school, under a plastic blue tent, with the soles of her only pair of shoes worn slick, threadbare, taking on water in the chicken coops, or flooding with urine from the clinic as she ministered to the dead. There, she had finally realized the stakes of the fight. The people came to her, and she armed them with orison. She composed herself. While the other priests ran away, she stayed and fought. Militians and legions killed everything around her, but her devotion screamed like a million raptors, delivering her barbed pleas to God. So if you guys have any questions, we'll take a few and then we can, there's plenty of cupcakes. There's more cupcakes than there are people here, so everybody can have two. <laughs> yes? Um, I'm interested, um, Andrea, in uh, why you chose to do it in a dual narrative. And um, I haven't read your book, so I don't know how many or if any narratives. It's like four. I've quadruple. I've, yeah. I've, I have a sex tablet narrative. No, I don't. <laughs> why did you choose to have the I think you've got a true dual narrative. I've just got third person omniscient. I've, I've got two and then one center section where suddenly some some different people come in. Um, that was just my concept from the beginning was to um, in a way kind of place myself in historical context. Um, and so that was always my concept was uh, two parallel stories that that briefly collide in a nutshell. I mean, I'm just, I would, I'm, mine's basically just third person I'm working in. Um, for me, the scope of the story I was trying to tell, I got, a, I got a little ambitious, which is usually a bad idea. I got a little ambitious on this one, and the book was actually pre-edit, pre-before even my editor saw it, was about three times as big, and kind of edited down to this level over a period of about three or four, three and a half years. So it was huge. Yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> and um, that being said, I think that the scope of it, uh, as it got pared down, I, I, I was trying to do something grand. I think I did something grand, but in a different way, but I was definitely being like, I'm going to 
I'm going to show, you know, flexing in the mirror and be like, I'm going to do this. This is going to be huge. But it was, <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't huge. You know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, it wouldn't, it, would, it didn't need to be huge. It's a lot better, succinct, a lot more succinct and defined the way it is. Yeah. Yes, you know what I mean? I was wondering if you talk a little bit about your, you, to me, both of your novels have great titles. Huh. I was wondering if you talk a little bit about how they evolved and when, how, how they happened. You and me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, calf is, um, I, I got asked this question once and they posed it as calf, animal or body part? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's it's back door. <laughs> it's an animal, uh, and it's meant to be like the sacrificial calf. But it's also um, the 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 real woman who uh, killed her daughter. Her last name was Devoe, and Vo is French for calf. Mine, uh, mighty mighty, is actually an allusion to uh, a Chicago street gang, one of the big, one of the oldest street gangs in the nation. It's uh, the Almighty Vice Lord Nation, and when they were back in the fifties, uh, they would literally it was a block, sh- it was a block call that they would run down the street and say, "Mighty mighty Vice Lord, mighty mighty Vice Lord." Back, this is the time of like warriors, like same. Same, like a, it's a really similar, but even before the Warriors, there was there were the Vice Lords who would usually uh, run the streets of Chicago, and um, that's where I got it, I, and I took it. I, w- I kind of, yeah, I wanted to do another, one more acknowledgement of the kind of the historical significance of Chicago and all that. Anything else? Yes? Yes? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, uh, this was actually my first book, and uh, I um, a lot of writers like set out. I'm going to write a thousand words a day, but I found that so confusing. Like, if you wrote a thousand one hundred and eighty-two <laughs> one day, then the next day, did you only have to write eight hundred and twenty-eight? Words. Um, oh, is that what you do? <laughs> You're better at uh, computation. So I, I tasked myself with writing five pages a day, and I didn't have to complete the fifth page. I just had to get one word onto it. Um, so for me, that was easier to to keep track of. And um, I um, I wrote a, a whole draft before I showed it to anyone, in part because uh, in part because I don't. I, I'm I'm a weirdo in that I I actually don't like showing works in progress because yeah. I'm it it's a uh, it's character it's a character flaw on my part is that I'm I'm too suggestible and if someone's like oh I really like this I'd be like oh really oh, I have to keep it um, <laughs> even even though it's not gonna serve me in the long run so I I really resist until I have like a full uh, draft. Um, not to get. I won't shine a complete window into like my OCD world of writing because it's crazy town. Um, I do. I'm a plotter. I do plot. Um, for the type of stuff that I'm writing, I have to be very conscious. I'm very well. I'm, I try to be very conscious of audience perspective and arcing. I, I'm, I, I have to arc, uh, especially with the, what I want trying to do with the language and what I'm, you know. 
to get to get the words really flying, I have to have a really strong foundation. Um, I also have like my my old fiction professor way in the back of my head with a lighter, which he used to do and be like, <laughs> and be like, get this crap out of here. So I hear that in my back of my head. But I think um, I write longhand, and I do um, I write one. <laughs> This is the OC. I go longhand, and then I do another draft on longhand, and then um, then I type, and then I edit. But it's like this really weird thing that I do that I go back and forth. Whether it whether like uh, the first, whether if it makes it out of the notebook, I like, have like hours being like, I don't know if this should go on the legal pad now. Like this is so I do this whole. I, I'm basically trying to edit as I go along a little bit, but. Um, yeah, that's kind of my process. But I do. Pl- I I I'm, I am a plotter. I don't know. Um, with it, I think it's. What, what do you mean when you say you're a plotter? Do you mean you um, I'm, completely I'm a, map it out before yeah, you start? Yeah, I map out a few, I map out enough to know where, where I'm going to an extent. That doesn't mean I stick to it. I let it go. because things inevitably they're gonna things are gonna change on the page. But for me to be comfortable and to have to feel like I have the freedom to play with the language, because that's where I get happy and I get and I enjoy as a writer. Uh, that's my favorite part, um, and it's also coming from back to the playwriting thing. It's something that I'm taking from playwriting and also from screenwriting. I'm a firm believer that every novelist could benefit huge by getting if there's any way if you're pursuing the, uh, uh, novels, if you can get into a television writer's room and sit for a day. If there's some way to for you to sit there and see how those guys work with plot it is eye-opening and it i and i think i wish the, the television writers could do the same with novels because you just pick up so much and realize that the whole idea of writing yourself into corn it's not everything is very fluid and when you see the people that adept at it at taking story and really breaking story down to its literal emote like smallest beats and seeing how they rework it and that it works out and that everyone's happy in the end you know like not not in the in the story but as far as they feel fulfilled their 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 uh, the audience feels fulfilled but during it it's made you're like this is crazy this isn't going to work and that's what i got from a lot of the kind of the w- working with screenwriters in my past is taking applying that to hijack hijack question yes um uh one of the things reading your book that I thought of was um, like the pulp novels of the like 40s and 50s. Yeah. Was that sort of um, something you were playing with? No, I think I'm a little... I, yeah, yes and no. I think it's also um, like in Four Corners because um, I want to take it to this hyper-realism place where it's very visceral. I have to start with certain archetypes. So... We'll start with a character with Norman, who, uh, who who's a really good example. He's a cop. And in the beginning of the book, he talks like a cop. And he carries himself like a cop. And in your head, the idea is you're going you're gonna to attach it. And he moves like a cop. And when he, ta- he talks like a Chicago cop. So when you're in your head, you can, gab- you can grab onto that. And, but as the story unfolds, 
I, I get to take that archetype and really put him in a three, make him make a two-dimensional character, kind of third, three-dimensional, and get him to do and have a really uh, strong inner life. But forget, for me, it's like to get the audience to take his hand. You have to give him something to hold on to, and we live in a you know world of archetypes, and you know everything's been done before. But I try to you know take that and give people a touchstone. You know, I'm, I'm conscious of wanting to create a touchstone for them. To, to go on the ride. To be in conversation with. Yeah, so they can feel like they're there and they know, okay, I get how this works, but then, you know, and then open up that, no, the physics are a little bit different here. This is what we're actually doing. The physics of this world are a little bit different. Yada, yada, yada. I can go on and on and on. I can get weirder and weirder and weirder. I, I don't talk mm-hmm. about it with anyone. I talk about it with my three-year-old son and he's like, <laughs> Astro Boy. Can I do one more question? Yeah. Anybody else? I've got some questions if no one else has questions, but the Yeah. Um, so I mean just so really uh, in regards to your process, so it sounds like you both write every day. Is that just when you're working on a novel or do you write every day as a rule? And then also how much of any workshopping do you do? And uh, <laughs> actually I forgot the last question. That that's probably yeah. Oh, I do a lot of reading. Um, I write every day when I'm working on a novel, which is usually every day, um, unless other things in my life take over. Um, But yeah, I think um, writing like all art forms is benefits from dailiness um, and from practice and now um, and now I get to plug my favorite book on dance that I'm so excited is back in print um, which I, I sort of led a campaign for it to be back in print and it's called A Choreographic Mind by Susan Redhorst and you're probably thinking why would I ever read a book about modern dance choreography um, but it's really good. It's really quirky and accessible and uh, can be applied to all kinds of uh, writing and other creative practices. Um, but one of the things that Susan Redhorse was talking about, um, uh, an experience that was um, really set her in motion, not to make a bad dance pun, uh, <laughs> Um, was when she was a student she at um, in college she took a class where they had to make a dance a day and that act of having to show up and create something um, really solidified in her this this practice and this idea that you actually could do it um, and uh, yeah it's a really great book it's you have to I'm sure they'll order it for you here but it's from this really small dance press they only answer emails on Tuesdays but it's worth it to try and get it well I think that that, that and I'll take this to get on a soapbox a quick soapbox I think that that speaks to a real big problem in, in the way that literature is taught especially writing is that all these great all these all, every other mediums come in and take taken such a really hard look at the creative process and they've come up with tangible steps whether it's dance whether it's theater 
writing, the writing tradition is still t- the, this, the fucking bullshit, you know, notion that it's whiskey, you know, you got your tumbler whiskey and your cigarette going and you're gonna work. It's, that gives you nothing, that teaches you nothing, that it's ridiculous, it's absolutely ridiculous, like, that no one's gotten in depth. A great book about writing, if you wanna, if you're interested, Richard Hugo, The Triggering Town, that was, that's, that's an incredible book about the process of creating, a, that's a good one. For me personally, I don't, um, I do write every day when I'm working on a book. It's pretty, I'm pretty hardcore about it. Right now, I'm kind of giving myself a little weight. I am working on another book, but I, you know, when time allows, I, uh, I forgot which writer said this, and I've kind of taken it deep to heart. One of the few ones that I've taken deep to heart is try to don't be precious. I write whenever I can. And I used to, pre-kid, I used to have a whole thing with the pencils and like the whole bit and now I don't I write whenever and wherever I can and for as long as I can and if I don't you know um, that goes back to the plotting thing um, is that I feel comfortable that I can walk away and also as far as reading I'm allowing myself a little fiction usually I don't allow myself much fiction I read a lot more uh, creative nonfiction. I read a lot of poetry I get a lot out of it as a fiction writer I get a lot out of poetry, a whole lot, just because of the brevity, because of they do so much with so little. Um, I do enjoy, it's hard, it's hard for me to enjoy fiction and to turn off the inner critic, it's really hard for me to do it, but that being said, I'm, I'm forcing myself to read some stuff right now, but yeah, that's kind of my thing, blah, blah, blah. Were there writers, uh, specific, uh, writers you were reading when you wrote Mighty Mighty? No. Actually, That's I, they're, a great they're, they're really they I was more than anything. I think I was trying to get away from my first. My first book was really was in first person, and this I was trying to get away from that. So that was like kind of in the. For, there was an element of that. So yeah, a, yeah. Photography. A lot of photography inspired this book mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. So, but I think that's it. Is that Anything. All right. Well, please help me to um, thank uh, very much uh, Wally Rudolph and Andrea Klein for their fantastic conversation. Yay. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.